Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. By using the European Green Deal as our compass, we can turn the crisis of this pandemic into an opportunity to rebuild our economies differently and make them more resilient. Welcome to EU Confidential. This is our 10th extra episode devoted to the coronavirus. I'm Andrew Gray, Politico's EU editor in Brussels, and you just heard European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen proclaiming a few weeks ago that she's aiming for a green recovery from the economic damage caused by this crisis. Angela Merkel and Emmanuel Macron set out their economic recovery plan today, and next week it will be the European Commission's turn. But what does the European Parliament want? Later in this episode, we'll hear from Pascal Confin, Chair of the Parliament's Environment Committee, on what MEPs want to see to make sure that recovery is truly green. But first, we're going to talk education. There are lots of questions these days about whether it's safe to send kids back to school, about the science behind how the coronavirus impacts children, and the politics of school reopenings. To help answer all of those questions, let's head to the UK and check in with our healthcare reporter in London, Ashley Furlong. Hi, Ashley. Hi, Andrew. Um, So we're going to talk about a big issue for a lot of people, which is uh, going back to school at the moment. Different countries taking different approaches right now in terms of opening up schools again and deciding... um, when and how children should go back to school. And you've been looking into that for a story which is going to be published uh, in the coming days. Uh, What's your kind of overall takeaway? I mean, I guess the big question that that parents are going to be asking is, is it safe to send, Mm. you know, my children back to school? Is there a definitive answer to that? Well, I think what policymakers are grappling with is sort of the science on one hand, and then parents and teachers' very real fears that may not always be based on the science, and then the effects of, of keeping kids away from school, which are both obviously social and economic. So, so on the science issue, I think that's the forefront of, of what, on most people's minds. And there's two aspects to this, really. Is it safe for children? And, and then sort of, is it safe for the broader population? So some basics on the coronavirus in, in kids. Uh, they are, for the most part, quite lucky, actually. Um, when they do get the virus, it's not very severe. Um, and the president of the, the Royal College of Pediatrics and Child Health last week said in a briefing that he could count on his two hands um, the number of kids who had died in the UK um, from COVID-19. And, and yesterday we heard from the, the chief scientists at the WHO, the World Health Organization, saying that um, it seems that children are much less capable of, of spreading the disease. And if they do get the infection, they're at very low risk of getting ill from the disease. But I think what's on a lot of people's minds at the moment as well is this new inflammatory um, 
Kawasaki-like illness that's afflicting very few children. It's very rare, um, but some children have died from it. And it's happening um, sort of in populations all over the world. Um, for example, we have we have one report coming out of Bergamo in Italy where the authors are describing sort of a 30-fold increase in this Kawasaki-like cases. So we got the WHO also calling um, over the weekend saying, please tell us if you see these cases, asking doctors to, to report back to them. Um, and they're saying that there's an urgent need for more information. But what we really are hearing is that this is very rare still um, and that, that this shouldn't really influence, this new inflammatory illness shouldn't influence whether policymakers um, decide to reopen schools. And then on what I was speaking at the beginning, sort of whether it's safe for the broader population, we've got a review coming out of Ireland that looked at various studies about whether um, children can spread the disease. And it found that there's actually sort of low transmissibility among children, which is obviously you know, a positive thing. Um, and we've, we've also got studies, uh, a study coming out of Germany, but showing, showing something slightly different, showing that children carry the same viral load as adults. Right. And there was at the beginning of this, there was a lot of talk about children being super spreaders, right? I mean, I don't know where that yes, came from, yeah. but it seemed to be quite widely spread, right? Yeah, the, the Irish study is, is, is looking at that and saying that that's not really the case. And as the, the WHO was saying over the weekend, well, their chief scientists, that they're actually less capable of, of spreading it. What from the current information. But I think that's that's the problem at the moment is that there isn't that much information. So, you know, we, we don't have these, you know, large randomized controlled trials uh, telling us that this is definitively the case. So there's still a lot of um, concern over whether that is the case and whether the children will dramatically push up the infection rate if they go back to school. Mm, mm. And what uh, can we see very different approaches country to country at the moment? Obviously, it's different mm. countries are different stages anyway in terms of you know relaxing lockdown measures. But are we seeing, I don't know, ideological differences between countries or within countries about how to approach this? Yes, definitely. So I think in most countries in Europe, we're seeing sort of gradual reopenings um, of schools or plans laid out for when schools will be reopened. So um, in Belgium on last week, they were sort of starting some trials out um, in, in schools to reopen some schools and we're starting out with younger children. Um, and I think this week is when this is going to sort of, you know, start speeding up a little bit. And, yeah, and, they and, seem to be uh, ramping it up. I met a yes, colleague actually yes. who was on his way to work, uh, a friend of mine who works for another news organisation, and he was on his way to work partly because his young son had gone back to school to Today. And so the message was, everybody's going back today. So even though he didn't really need to go to the office, it was like, don't worry, we're not all just staying at home, everybody's going out. So they're definitely, uh, it's, it's still very much um, tentative with the Belgian system, but they're definitely ramping it up for some, for some years anyway. And I think that's sort of the um, the point of, of often sending kids back to school is to get the parents back to work and sort of restart the economy in, in many cases. Um, but other countries such as, um, as Spain and Italy haven't sent children back. I think they've, they've been quite hard hit, obviously, by the virus and they're quite fearful of, of doing that. But in the UK, we see... Um, plans for for an early sort of June restart for some of the younger kids and that sort of sparked quite a it's become political issue in a way um we've got the British Medical Association which is the doctors union backing the teachers union saying that we can't risk a spike in the in the in the disease um and and the BMA is sort of saying that there's not enough evidence um and that we're sort of very uncharted territory so we have also local authorities in in some areas saying that they they're not going to follow the government guidance and they're going to take their decisions into their own hands and we've seen similar moves in France where 
some schools have decided, you know, sort of not to reopen. Mm. And, you know, obviously there's a, as with everything here, there's, you know, there's a public health aspect in the, in the narrower sense, if you like, in terms of, you know, curbing the spread of the virus. But then there are also uh, broader issues to consider. And, you know, this one obviously, you know, involves education and how the effect of, of a kind of prolonged period away from school and what that has, what effect that has on children and on families. Is there much evidence there in terms of what we can say about, for example, whether it will increase inequality between, you know, um, families who, you know, perhaps have parents who are better suited to do homeschooling and have the technology to help with it and those that don't? Very much so. So that's that's what I'm hearing is that this sort of widens this divide between rich and poor families in a sense. And there's those, those lucky kids, as you say, whose schools have gone full digital and whose parents are able to support them. And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have children who are in environments where there may be abuse or addiction, very much of the same issues that we worried about, about adults staying in, in you know, sort of unsafe uh, home environments. These children are also in them. And so for them, it's quite important to return to school. And also, obviously, the, the sort of whether they're going to fall behind um, and how they're going to catch up with their schoolwork when it goes back. Obviously, there's also mental health issues and whether these are worsening during the coronavirus um, for children as well. But ultimately, I think what I've been hearing is that it's about managing risk. So uh, this is obviously at the centre of of reopening. And I heard quite a nice analogy um, that... I interviewed two people and they both mentioned sort of car accidents and keeping keeping kids safe in cars. And it's it's that sort of idea that when you when you take your kid, you know, you drive it, your kid anywhere, you put a seatbelt on them, you might put them in a car seat. And in the same way when we when we reopen schools, we need to sort of have all these tools in place, the social distancing, small classes, hand washing, masks. So we have all these protective tools. But essentially, we're going to have to open uh, eventually and, and in a sense, learn to live with the virus. Um, And I think nowhere is this sort of more true than sending children back to school eventually. So there's lots of big questions there. Yeah. Has anyone found out, you know, has come up with good ways to, especially with younger children, uh, you know, to help them do social distancing? Because that sounds like a pretty tough ask for, for a youngster. So I think lots of the lots of the answers have sort of been to, to have very much smaller classes, just to have fewer kids. Um, uh, but obviously, there's also issues with you know whether you're going to have children wearing masks and smaller children being you know wanting to take the mask off. And there's also obviously with smaller classes that means you know where do the rest of the kids go? Are they staying at home and being taught digitally? Are we having you know more teachers teaching, you know, different classes. There's all sorts of questions about that. And I've also heard some people suggesting getting help in from people who are retired, et cetera, um, to sort of uh, beef up the system in a way. And as well, there's also issues with teachers who themselves are maybe immunocompromised or who are older and who don't want to sort of expose themselves to to the virus uh, more than they, than they need to. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this is it. There's so many other people involved in exactly. making a school work, right? From from the teachers to the support staff to, you know, the bus drivers. And there's, there's a lot to consider. Yeah. Well, it's definitely one of the big topics of the moment. And um, we'll look forward to seeing your piece in the days ahead and, and definitely follow it in the, in the weeks and months to come. Thanks very Great. much, Ashley. Thanks, Andrew. Cheers. Now let's switch from education to the economy. Earlier today, I spoke to Pascal Confin, the French MEP from the Renew Europe Group, who chairs the European Parliament's Environment Committee, about what the Parliament wants to see in the EU's recovery plans and how they should work with the EU's long-term budget, the Multiannual Financial Framework, or MFF. 
He also talks about an idea that's expected to be at the heart of the Commission's plans, raising money on financial markets through loan guarantees by increasing budget headroom, the amount the EU can theoretically call upon from member countries, even if it doesn't actually do so. Pascal Confin, welcome to EU Confidential. Thank you for the invitation. You're chairman of the European Parliament's uh, Environment Committee. You're obviously concerned about how the recovery will be organised and how green it can be. What, what are your main demands? What are the main things that your committee are looking to see when we finally see the recovery instrument next week? Well, it's not only the NV Committee. It's the whole Parliament uh, asking for a, a two trillion recovery package. It was adopted with a very broad majority last week. So a two trillion recovery package means a specific recovery fund uh, connected uh, to the MFF of around one uh, trillion to one point five trillion as as a minimum. So that's what we are after. That's what we look uh, and what we hope. The Commission will deliver uh, next week uh, because that's a key instrument not only to recover but also to recover with solidarity and to recover the green way. And of course, that's also a big uh, ask from the Parliament uh, not only to have uh, solidarity uh, uh, proposals on the table together to, to the countries that have been the most uh, hit by, by the, the, the crisis, but also to have a recovery that will be aligned with the Green Deal and that will not delay the Green Deal, but on the contrary, will speed up the Green Deal as the engine of the recovery. Okay. Now, the money that you're talking about there, you know, two trillion, that's a lot of money. Where should that money come from? Uh, without being too technical, it's the so-called uh, headroom of the MFF, meaning that between the money you guarantee and the money you actually uh, spend, there is a, a headroom and uh, we can use, or the Commission can use this headroom in order to raise European debt. And this European debt uh, will be transferred partly through grants, partly through loans to the various European countries, partly through the already existing MFF lines, partly through new uh, lines such as uh, direct health lines, because up to today, there is no direct public health line in the MFF. And it's uh, a request from uh, uh, the NV committee, but also uh, from uh, the whole parliament to have a specific line in order to help the health system, for instance, in, in Italy or, or Spain. So uh, it's it's within the MFF, but with a specific uh, governance, I would say, in terms of allocation and breakdown key. Because, of course, one point, one key issue for this recovery package is to make sure that you, the money, will flow into the countries that are the most hit. Otherwise, there is no solidarity and there is no point in building a European tool. So that's why what we expect from the Commission is a tool which is in the framework of the MFF, using the headroom between uh, resource and spending. But then we, what we expect is much more detail from the Commission on uh, how to make sure it is uh, targeting the, the, the right countries, the right regions, the right sectors, and of course, how far and how deep 
it is truly connected to uh, the Green Deal. What do you say to people who are sceptical of the idea of tying the, the whole recovery fund, recovery instrument, uh, into the MFF? The MFF is a, is a big, complex thing in itself. It's a subject of a lot of debate and um, dispute. It normally takes several summits just to agree the MFF. Isn't there a case for keeping that separate from this, which is another big and complex issue? I mean, bundling them all together, isn't that a recipe for trouble? That, that's a good question. That's why my starting point was that we should really work on the two options, either having something integrated into the MFF or a separated specific, I would say, a framework mechanism and, and legal tool in order to deliver on, on the investment. But that doesn't look like that's going to happen. Have you kind of accepted that's not the way it's going? So, again, it will probably be enshrined in the MFF if it's just a copy-pasting of the MFF and then you just expand the existing MFF lines, it will not deliver on what it needs to deliver because the MFF lines, for instance, well, one example I already uh, mentioned, there is no health MFF line. So we definitely want an additional health line. Uh, second, the budget allocation cannot be the same when it comes to the usual MFF and this recovery fund, because the impact of the crisis has nothing to do with the, the breakdown of the MFF key. So that's why even if it's associated, connected, enshrined in the MFF, there is a very strong need for specific decision-making process for this one point something trillion. Uh, and my message is that we should go for something, even if it's within the framework of the MFF, we should go for something with specificities, specificities in allocation and also specificities uh, regarding the Green Deal. So my two messages to the Commission, it's first, this 1.5 trillion should follow a do not harm principle regarding the Green Deal. I mean, that would be completely counterproductive maybe as well absurd when it comes to the climate perspective that this money would finance fossil fuels, for instance. And second, a, using uh, the taxonomy, the three categories of the taxonomy in order to guide uh, the investments that will be financed by this uh, recovery fund when it comes to sectors with a high climate impact such as uh, uh, transportation, uh, energy, infrastructure, and so on. Right, and this taxonomy is the way that the Commission defines um, investments that would be considered um, positive for the for the climate. Um, just uh, following up on that, you, you were saying, you know, there should be no investments in fossil fuel. There may be people listening to this saying, this is an emergency. Uh, you know, Europe is facing its worst uh, recession since the Second World War. Um, if we need to invest in fossil fuels to preserve jobs, to keep to get people back to work in the short term, that's what we should do. Uh, what would you say to that? Well, first, we are not going to invest twice such an amount of public money. So that would become completely unwise, of course, from a climate perspective, but also from a purely budgetary perspective and financing wisdom, I would say, perspective, to invest in things that we are going to uh, unplug in a few years' time. It's better to, to have a strategy where you invest in technologies 
that you can really bet on short term and medium term and that's why i uh, uh, worked uh, within the alliance for green recovery i initiated uh, a few weeks ago uh, with ceos with ministers and of course with meps and think tanks in order to design the first recovery package that will be aligned on the paris agreement the one just one figure the investment gap we have today in Europe regarding or comparing the investment, the current investment in the economy and the investment trajectory we should follow in order to comply with the Paris Agreement is an investment gap of around 300 billion a year, public and private. So if it comes only to public investment, because this recovery fund will, of course, be only public money, it's about 100 billion a year. So my ask to the Commission is to have a system where you can monitor, of course contribute to and monitor the fact that we raise the level of investment in the economy for the next two years. So a, a green investment uh, public of around 250 billion euros over the next two years not only EU money, so not only the recovery package itself or the EIB, but EU money plus member states' money. And then if you add that up, if we are serious about the Green Deal and if we want to make the most of this amazing amount of money that we are going to reinvest in the economy, then for the first time, we might design a Paris aligned recovery package if we raise the level of green investment in addition of the existing levels, of course, up to uh, additional 250 billion. And to answer your point, I mean, the green technologies are much more mature now than 10 years ago. And this, the, the, the level of awareness in societies and in the companies are as well uh, much, much more mature. So that's why when you add, add the two dimensions, I would say the, the cultural one and the, the economic and technological one, then you can see there is a way. There is a way now not to duplicate and to do again the, the mistake uh, we made in, uh, in, uh, in 2009, decoupling, I would say, the short-term recovery and the fight against climate change. Mm. What's your biggest fear at the moment? What worries you most about the current debate? Are there any, you know, comments or stances of particular gov governments that give you particular cause for concern? Well, I try to see, you know, the hopes more than, than fears and, and concerns. What strikes me is that there is a usual criticism of Europe saying, okay, you, Europe does not do enough, does, doesn't do almost anything. But when you look at the economic front, uh, the decisions made in a couple of days only. And now, a few uh, weeks after the, the beginning of this, uh, this crisis, having on the table a potential proposal of, I hope so, more than 1 trillion, 1.5 trillion for a recovery package, it's something that is huge. So, of course, it can still be disappointing. Maybe in a, in a, in a few weeks, I will tell you that I'm disappointed. But the mere fact that there is a formal mandate from the Council to work on it for the Commission and that in a few days we will have a proposal for such a recovery fund 
is something that we failed to do altogether during the last uh, Eurozone crisis. So I think we are in the right direction. Uh, of course, I mean, we need, we need to, to, to work in details, but we are in the, in the right direction, which, to my view, already is a good political message uh, to share. Okay, one final question. Uh, a colleague of mine said that you were hoping to use uh, the lockdown to finish a novel you've been working on. I believe the working title was The ISIS Banker. Have you managed to finish it? No, it was already finished, actually. So it was supposed to be published in June, but for obvious reason, it's delayed to September. Okay, give us a quick plot summary. Can you give us the, the one word, you know, what would be on the back of the book? Oh, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's the story of... Uh, of a journalist that received a, a letter from Syria uh, and uh, from a top manager of uh, ISIS. And then the story starts between him, a banker in London, uh, in a girl in Beirut, and, and, and potential terrorist in Syria. And then I, I, I don't see it more. <laughs> okay, well, that's enough. That's enough to whet our appetite. It certainly sounds like that journalist has a more um, dramatic life than many of us who cover the European Union. So um, I, I think a lot of us will be reading it. Pascal Calfin, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all the time we have on this episode of EU Confidential, our 10th special episode since normal life went into hibernation. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode, rate us by clicking some stars and leave a review. And you can email us anytime at podcast at politico.eu. And we'll be back on Thursday with a regular edition of the podcast when we'll hear from the creator of Parlement, a comedy drama TV series about the European Parliament. Until then, I'm Andrew Gray in Brussels. Thanks to producer Christina Gonzalez and thanks to you for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.